Welcome to Homebase Hope, all about autism, the show that invites you to think differently, inspires you to take a whole child approach, and most of all, instills hope when it comes to your child and autism. I'm your host, Rhiannon Crisp, from homebasehope.com.au. Let's get into it. Welcome back, guys. Today we're talking about one of the most important topics that I think we can cover And it doesn't matter what age or stage your child is at, this is going to be relevant. So today we're talking about self-regulation and I am super excited to be speaking with our guest today. I am talking with Katie Crosby. Now, I connected with Katie over on Instagram, as you do these days, and I was just captivated by her content and her wealth of knowledge. So if you're over on Instagram, go check her out. She's at Thriving Littles. Katie Crosby is an occupational therapist and a DIR floor time practitioner specializing in emotions and behaviors and relationships through the lifespan. She works with kids and parents to facilitate child and family development through targeting the parent-child match and daily interactions. Welcome, Katie. Thanks so much, Rhiannon. I am so excited to be here talking with you. And it's a privilege to be on your podcast, which I love and has been so helpful in referring to families and people that I'm working with and anybody that I'm close to interested in all of these topics. So Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, We always start the podcast rewinding the clock a little bit. So just to get a bit of background information on what led you to the work that you're doing today? Because you are so passionate about it um, and that definitely shines through in your stories on Instagram. Um, what led you to where you are today? So there are a lot of different things that led me to be a pediatric OT. And growing up, I was really involved with kids in lots of different ways. And one of them was nannying. So I was a nanny for probably about 30 families in my hometown, in a small town, and spent a lot of my time from a young age with kids. So I was really interested. I felt really comfortable around kids. I was really uh, excited about interacting with them and getting to know them in a personal way. And I worked with kids with different vulnerabilities or sensitivities, but I never really thought about using it as a career. Um, I thought about being an educator for a while, but that wasn't really ringing a bell for me in some ways. And there were lots of different uh, things that I wanted to do. So I think I had passion for a lot of different things, and it was difficult to hone in on what exactly it was that I was interested in related to kids. So my high school years, I had a brother who died of suicide. So I became really more intimately interested in mental health at that point, of course. So fast forward to college, I was pretty thrown off by that and just thinking about my life path and where I wanted to go from there. So I initially wanted to go into business for a while and then just didn't feel like it's the right fit, but I went into logistics after college, paid off some student loans, so that was exciting. And then I first learned of pediatric OT when I was living in Chicago and I met my friend and mentor and just felt so connected to this type of work. And I thought that's exactly what I want to do with my life. So here I am. Mm. And went back to be a pediatric OT. Mm, Awesome. That's great. 
Um, and it's so, I always find it so interesting how people got to where they are today. You know, everything in their past has sort of led to the work that they're doing. And, um, yeah, it's, you're doing such meaningful work in our space. So thank you so much for that. Um, let's dive into self-regulation. So that's what we're talking about today. What exactly is it? Because most parents have probably heard it, whether their therapist has said it or they've read about it online. What, what's self-regulation? So I see there's a lot of different definitions out there about self-regulation and what it is. And the way that I think about it as an OT is just the ability to monitor and modify our actions and our behaviors according to the various situations, environments, tasks, or interactions that we're in at the time. So it's something that fluctuates throughout the day and throughout the mo even the moments. So it's something that goes up and down and is constantly shifting throughout the day depending on the resources that we have available. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of kids on the autism spectrum will have challenges with their ability to self-regulate. Um, how, how do we know if a child has challenges with their ability to self-regulate? How can parents identify that and go, oh, that's a self-regulation issue, you know, maybe I need to see an OT or maybe it's a psych or how do they identify that? So there, there's a lot of different kind of red flags that we would look at and the way that I see it with kids uh, that parents may be questioning is if there are certain developmental red flags such as Maybe they're not engaging with peers or they're overly engaging with peers or not sure how to interact. So they're being physical or showing different behaviors outwardly that way. Um, one way that I look at it is if a child is having more difficulty than their same age peers or their behaviors are showing up more intensely, more frequently, um, or for longer than their peers. So we're really looking at the behaviors of the child and it isn't just the outward external behaviors. So some kids may melt down or may hit or may um, show more aggressive behaviors on a consistent day-to-day -day basis that's impacting their function. However, not all kids will show that. So some kids are more subtle and inter internally based and oriented. And with those kids, it's really about attuning to the child's internal state and looking at how their internal state is impacting their participation in the world or their participation with peers or just their ability to lead a childhood that feels fulfilled in some ways. Mm. Yeah, I love that. And like you said, it is looking at the behaviors because this is the indication that we're going to get as parents that um, something's not right. You know, we're, we're we're not going to be able to mind read, but we're going to be able to see the behaviours. So whether it's, like you said, kicking, screaming, yelling, punching, shut down, so hiding and hibernating away from the outside world. Um, you know, they may have difficulty calming down, so it may take them a really long time to bounce back from mm -hmm. a situation, um, focusing on a task, and um, controlling impulses, so they might be impulsive. Um, yeah, just all those things like managing frustration and disappointment. It's going to take them a lot longer than other kids their age to develop um, the skills of resilience and um, regulating those emotions and those behaviours. Exactly. Yeah, so I think that's a beautiful way of saying that 
the behaviors are kind of the tip of the iceberg. So they're what we see on the outside or, you know, whether it's an externalizing behavior, internal behavior, and it is our role as caregivers or adults to really dive deep and investigate what could be under that behavior and what the root of the behavior may be, especially if it's a child that has more vulnerabilities or more um, needs than, you know, maybe the same age peers. Mm. And that's it, exactly. Um, behaviors are just tip of the iceberg. There is something that's triggering the behavior. Behavior is just what we can see. And behavior is always communicating something. It's always telling us something is not right. And the behavior is almost like them crying out for help saying, you know, I'm not coping right now. I, I need your help, you know, and that's, that's when we need to step in because they're not able to self-regulate. Like for us, I know for me, self-regulation, um, you, know, you know, if I was angry or upset or there's something emotionally going on with me, to self-regulate, I like to go for a run. And I know a run or a shower is nice, like to calm down. Like these are techniques that I'll use for myself. And kids, um, obviously their brain's still developing. So um, they may not have the ability to self-regulate yet. So understanding that, that their behaviour is just, it's not that they're naughty, it's not that they're defiant, they just don't have the actual ability to regulate those emotions yet. They don't know how to. So we need to step in and, and help them with that. Yes, it's, it's so important. And I think there's so many judgments that we have going in as a society as a whole, not just us. Um, I think there's a lot of uh, opinions or, or ideal, idealized views of the ways that kids should be. And that can really get in the way of being curious in the moment and problem solving and helping to observe what's going on. If we're thinking about how the behavior shouldn't be a certain way or should be different, or if we're worried about what the people around us are thinking. So there's so much emotion in all individuals involved for these behaviors and what they can mean. Mm, absolutely. So, um, and I suppose that sort of takes us into reframing our perspective around behavior. And I know I, I did see this on one of your Instagram highlights. Um, so that, and, and it goes back to sort of what I was just saying that, you know, kids aren't like inherently naughty. They're not hitting, screaming, yelling. They're not doing these behaviors because they're naughty. They're doing it because, you know, there's a reason for it. And I suppose it's finding that trigger. Why is it so important that we start reframing this perspective from, you know, they're naughty to there's an actual reason? How much mm -hmm. insight will that give us as parents and what will that enable us to do? So when we can get curious about reframing the behavior and looking at it a little bit differently, it allows us to go through the sequence of, and I, let me know if I'm taking this with where you thought with the highlight that you saw. But it allows us to go through the process of helping or supporting the child from dysregulation, so that upset disorganization of the nervous system, to then uh, co-regulation, which is helping to calm with the support of an adult caregiver, and then ultimately self-regulation. So it allows them to monitor and modify the behaviors or actions and their internal body sensations on their own. So if we are looking at behavior as bad and punishing or extinguishing the behavior, 
then it misses the opportunity to go through this process, which is where kids learn to regulate their body and regulate their emotions. And it's where they learn to read their signals and cues. So kids first start with a more physical, primitive, uh, reactive mode of being. So if a child takes their toy, they might grab it back or they might hit that child. And it's not saying that it's okay. Um, you know, good, bad, right, or wrong. Uh, we're avoiding judgment. It's looking deeper about what is happening for that child and looking what they're capable of in the moment and whether or not they've had probably thousands of repetitions or hundreds of repetitions of help an adult in the moment helping to guide them through this and helping to make meaning of that impulse in their body and shift it into something that would be more adaptive. So ultimately down the road, yes, we don't want them grabbing or hitting or using that more impulsive quality. But in the moment, if we aren't able to reframe the perspective on behavior and what it means, then we're really missing that opportunity to attune to them and their experience and help them ultimately develop self-regulation down the road. Mm, so important. And I think as parents too, we, we need to learn to self-regulate, don't we? Because often when, you know, say our kid, you know, like you said, hits another child because they want their toy back, um, you know, we'll, we'll get frustrated and angry and we might snap at our child. And again, it comes back to that self-regulation. Can we regulate those emotions and stay calm and present in the moment without judgment? I love that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, okay. And you mentioned co-regulation. So how does this work exactly? So there's a lot of different techniques that go into co-regulation and every child is as unique as a fingerprint. That's a phrase that I say all day long. So co-regulation will look different for each individual child and what their nervous system or what their body needs in the moment. So overall, a huge co-regulation technique is um, the adult supporting the child and staying present in the moment of dysregulation, as well as the moments of uh, daily routine or a child's day-to-day life that is helping, or it's the adult being available for the child's internal state. So it's almost like this back and forth dance that's happening all throughout the day. And it's really setting up the child for this physiological capacity to be calm and regulated on their own down the road. So Uh, One technique that I would use is uh, visual gaze. So just being eye to eye with an infant or a child and having this affective mirroring before the caregiver, between the caregiver and the child. So it's almost like this synchrony that's connecting the child to the caregiver. And there's lots of different ways that we can shift the child's nervous system by being attuned and aware of our own regulation moment to moment. And then also helping to guide theirs back and forth. So for example, if a child is really excited and they're really intensely experiencing this joy, um, a, a mom or a caregiver might look at that child and notice that if they're getting really excited, they kind of look away or their eyes shift away. So that's the infant's way of saying, okay, that's a little bit too much. I need to look away and reduce this sensory input that's coming into my body in this moment. So 
the caregiver, ideally an attuned caregiver, might kind of almost subconsciously reduce their intensity in the moment because they're noticing that the, the infant is looking away. So it's this back and forth dance of nonverbal communication and a really coherent um, reciprocal interaction that sets the stage for co-regulation. And then in the moment where the child is upset, the caregiver is helping to down-regulate, so shift our interaction or our intensity down, or change our tone of voice, or speak maybe half as quickly as we usually would. So we're doing all these things with our face and our gestures and our body position to help the child's nervous system go to a more regulated level. Mm. So how important is this connection and how does it impact regulation? Mm -hmm. So connection is really the way of filling a child's cup, if you will, and setting the the foundation for attention and regulation. So the um, affective mirroring that was mentioned is, is really what is the glue of connection. So it is the constant shift between disengagement and re-engagement that allows the child to develop this kind of vitality of life, if you will. So it's the essence of life is this being um, engaged with and, and enjoying and sharing joy. And it's really shifting the brain in powerful ways. When we have positive interaction that is kind of intertwined with these little negative interactions, if you will. So moments that are more challenging or moments that are difficult, the caregiver is then able to shift that into a positive interaction following. And it's a big way to build resilience in kids to get through things like conflict in relationships, but also to get through things like a tough exam at school or a tough um, conflict with a peer in school. So it really generalizes to a multitude of areas in a child's life in a way that you probably wouldn't think about when it comes to just thinking about the connection between a caregiver and a child. Mm. So it's this constant coordination of um, kind of tempo and pace and uh, the caregiver attending to the cues of the child in a connected way and then enabling the child to be attentive to their surroundings and their environment and the world around them that we like to live in. Mm. And I've seen you talk a lot too about um, joining their world and getting on their level when you're talking to them. And I thought that was such a, an important point as well. Yes, yeah. And there's so much. I think if you think about a big adult standing over a child, there is a level of threat that goes into that and a level of disconnection because the child's down here and the adult's up here and the adult's this big, powerful person. So if we can, even simple things like kneeling down, and getting at their eye level or below is a really nice way to set up that safety and security and connection that really sets the foundation for a child's ability to be organized and, and to feel seen and connected to their caregivers and the world around them. Mm, love it. So we're obviously not born with this ability to self-regulate. Um, it's, some, it's a skill we have to develop and it's something obviously through that co-regulation and, and through those steps that we can help a child to be able to independently regulate their own body. Um, but how can, how can we teach this? Are there any ways that we can teach this other than co-regulation? 
Yeah. So I think it, when we say teach, there is a, I think self-regulation isn't something that can be taught. Unfortunately, it would be um, great if it could be. It's something that needs to be modeled again and again with caregivers in a child's life. So, um, and I think by, uh, through this interaction, so through the relationship and through moment to moment, so not just the challenging moments, but um, it's the child feeling like their internal state is understood and seen by their caregiver in day-to-day life. And through that, the child is able to ultimately understand their own signals and their own body cues and to make meaning of emotion in their body. So emotions, this big swirling energy that is confusing, especially when it starts to first emerge. And the caregiver is there to model what it means to experience that emotion and help emotion and help the child recognize that it is safe to feel and emotions don't need to be scary or confusing in a level that's completely upsetting. It's a natural part of the human experience and and we can get through it together. And a big prerequisite to this is just like you mentioned earlier. So the caregiver needs to be attuned to their own internal states, which again, this shifts all day long and day to day. And we're all doing the best we can, I think. So it's, it's ultimately dependent on the caregiver capacity to monitor and regulate our internal states. And especially through what we know as negative affect or sadness, shame, anger. So there's all of these nuances that kids pick up on and kids will mirror kind of through the way that we uh, regulate our emotion and the way that we process and release and have this emotional energy come out into the world and be metabolized and shift into something adaptive. Mm. And I think, like you said, we've got to remember that these emotions are normal. Being angry is normal. Being sad is normal. It's not, um, you know, it's something that we should be able to express as adults too. And like you said, model it, you know, show our kids, you know, I'm, I'm upset because, and let them know that you have those same feelings. And also um, in terms of self-regulation, you know, you can show them what you do when you're upset or when you're frustrated or angry. You know, I'm frustrated because that parcel that was meant to arrive today didn't arrive today. Um, I'm going to go for a walk or I'm going to, you know, show them the strategies that you use too when you're in that state. I think can be really important part of modeling that. Absolutely. Yes. Um, all righty. What are we up to? Um, how can we optimize a child's day to minimize some of the stress and overload? And I suppose this is a very general question and every kid will have different triggers. Is there mm-hmm. some things that we can do to help support kids who are who have more difficulty with self-regulation? I would say first, so step one, and we've been talking about this again, but observing ourselves. So observing our own capacity and triggers and what allows us to minimize stress and overload in our own lives and um, when we do best. So that's a really nice place to start in attuning to our reactions and creating space. So I think in the world today, it's so easy to get overscheduled and do lots of different activities and be going from place to place and hardly sitting down to eat and 
um, I think with that level of rushing and doing, there's a, there, it is a challenge for a lot of us, especially the doers in the world, which I know a lot about that. Um, it's a challenge to just create the space and create the pause throughout the day that is really essential when it comes to regulation and being with kids and um, creating this, again, sense of safety. So safety and security so that a child can be as regulated as possible. So, um, you know, having some daily routines that are predictable and having the space to, if there are emotions that come out, there's space to process it and space to feel or release, if that's the goal, space for us to look at what they're communicating in the moment and um, go through this process. So um, in the moment, I think, of difficulty, we're looking at, how to regulate and then relate and then reason with kids. But also we're doing that all day long with ourselves. So um, kind of attuning to our own internal states in a way that we can be available for the stress and the overload and be in a problem solving state versus a reactive state that we all get into at times as humans, because that's the way that we are. And uh, just thinking it's a natural part of life, but also kind of, being aware of those judgments about the way that kids should be and um, being aware of our triggers and what they mean and thinking, is it related to the child in this moment or is it our own experiences or judgments coming in and how can we minimize that? So that's really a big way of saying step one is to be aware of all those things on our own. So we are in a problem solving space because again, every child is so different. So um, there's, so many different ways that we can optimize the day and support each child moment to moment and kind of putting on a detective cap and being that person for that child is the probably the most powerful thing that we can do. Mm, I totally agree. Um, Being the detective, working out what the trigger is. What happens when a child's already in a meltdown state? So they're already at that state where they're kicking, screaming, crying, head banging, biting, whatever the behavior is, if they're already there, how can parents support them to regulate in that moment? Mm-hmm. So it's such a big question. And I think it's one of the most challenging times to be available because it's intense to sit with big feelings and big emotions and things shift throughout the day. So it's like just when we get to know a child and what they need, things can shift or move. So we're constantly adapting and changing our methods and our our ways to connect and be available but to kind of go through a sequence that I like to share with families and I've seen be really effective and really helpful in my work with kids and especially kids that are more challenging or have more of these meltdowns or more big intense feelings to express so a common sequence, and this is Bruce Perry, who does some work with trauma, but I think it's a, it's a really nice way of helping not just kids that have been through, quote, trauma, which I think there's a lot of different experiences that can feel traumatic for different kids. So we kind of have to broaden our scope a little bit, but it's a method to help kids get back to that level of safety and regulation that their nervous system can grow and learn from these moments and help to integrate the emotion and sensation and move through it. So there's a triangle. So um, 
I believe he calls it the learning triangle. So the bottom is regulate, the next level is relate, and the top of the triangle is reason. So what he's saying is that in order for us to be able to reason with a child, so often when I start working with families, adults are so, we're so logical. So if a child is upset about something, and to us it may seem trivial, or there's an easy fix that we think may help the child um, regulate through. But we're coming in with logic. And if a child is in this emotional state, so the child isn't able to process the language or really hear what we're saying, then it's likely that they will get further triggered if we come in at that reason, reasoning level or the logical level with lots of language as we like to do because it's, it's sometimes tough to see kids having big emotions and we either want to fix it or we want it to go away or we have somewhere to be. So there, you know, there's times where we do have somewhere to be or something to do and there won't be space to go through this in the way that we would like to. But the ideal way is to then go back to that bottom of the triangle. So go back to regulate, meaning as an OT, we're looking at using sensory strategies to soothe the child. So this will look different depending on the child, but if they're at a level of upset where they are not able to process, so this is where we may see the stress responses, fight, flight, freeze. So um, their nervous system is saying there's a threat or there's something I need to react to, and their body's reacting in a very emotional, more primitive way. So it's our role in that moment to figure out what sensory strategies are helpful for them and to help the child soothe. So just getting to that regulate level using sensory strategies. So this might look like, you know, if it's an infant swaddling, so using this body pressure to help the nervous system calm. Um, It might look like using our voice. So maybe our voice is able to regulate that child and help them get back to an organized level. So we go through all the sensory systems with the understanding that all sensory input has an emotional association with it. So sensory and emotion are really connected and there's a relationship between the amount of sensory input and the level of emotion or the type of emotion that that sensory input triggers and vice versa. So in this first step is... um, regulate is all about figuring out what it means for that individual child in the moment and helping them to soothe if needed. And then we are watching. So we're constantly observing and watching the child's signals and the child's individual cues. So when it looks like the child is ready, we get up the triangle a little bit further to relate. And this In DIR floor time, there's developmental capacities that we're traveling up through this sequence as well. So once a child is able to feel soothed enough where they can possibly share eye contact or visual gaze, so it's like we're stretching out their ability, their emotional signaling across space a little bit. So we're watching the child, observing when they're soothed enough where they might be able to relate with a caregiver. And then maybe they're sitting on our lap, just looking at us. Um, We might be nodding. We might say, I know, I know. 
So something with minimal language, using gestures, using affect in a really empathetic way. So the trick behind all of this is that it's really not tricks. It's really not strategies. We have to really feel truly empathetic in our bodies for this to work or for, for them to feel like we're available for this process, which can be tricky depending on the day. But it's just something that we're practicing and we're learning and we're always working towards. So there's no kind of perfection when it comes to this process. It is a process. So then after watching, if the child uh, is able to relate in that context and they're feeling pretty good, so they're maybe looking more organized, there's a different level of stillness to their body, which is indicating their nervous system might be ready for more um, or to travel up that triangle. Or maybe they don't in the moment. So maybe they need some space before we would do any level of reasoning. So again, it depends on the child. But once we see that their signals and cues indicate that they may be ready to process language, at that moment, we can say, um, suggest some problem solving. So this is where I use a lot of I wonder statements. So something like, I wonder if getting a glass of water would help, or maybe they're upset about having to leave the park. And you could say, I wonder if giving you a piggyback ride to the corner might help or racing to the car. Or I wonder if when we get home, if we should read that really special book that you like for five minutes or kind of helping them to, to develop these uh, problem-solving experiences, but also recognizing that that emotion was intense and it didn't feel good in a lot of ways. It maybe felt different or new, but there is something positive that we can return to. And there is some... Uh, there are some tools that we have to get through it and to get to the other side. And it's kind of a collaborative process in what that is and what works for each child. So um, we're constantly reading their cues and reading signals and seeing when they're ready to get to that next level of the triangle. And also um, a big piece throughout this is attuning in that we're validating and normalizing whatever it is that they're feeling. So emotional validation can help the body or the mind organize or integrate whatever it is that we're feeling. So Dan Siegel and Tina Payne Bryson have different strategies and one of them is called name it to tame it. So if you read whole brain child or no drama discipline, Naming or labeling the emotion may be a way to help the child integrate or feel and understand and make meaning of that emotion. So again, we're kind of looking at the child and seeing when they might be ready to hear something like this. So you might say something like, "I no wonder you, no wonder you're so sad. You had so much fun going down the slide. You were playing with your peers, you're playing with your friends." You did that really big thing where you climbed up the slide. Like, oh, no wonder you're bummed about leaving. This makes sense. Like, this, your emotion makes sense. And by doing that, we're helping all the pieces click together in this little child's disorganization and moment of confusion in their body in a way that helps to clarify that for them and also develop 
down the road, ultimately their capacity to go through this process on their own and validate what they're feeling and normalize it. This makes sense that I'm feeling this way and getting to the problem solving level. So these skills will last them all through life, you know, when they're teenagers and they're stressed about something, maybe instead of doing something damaging or detrimental, maybe they'll go to their caregiver because they feel like that's a safe space for them to go through this process and they feel heard and they feel seen and um, all throughout their life. Mm, I love that. And I have never heard of that triangle. Um, And I love that because it really simplifies everything, doesn't it? Really easy Mm -hmm. way to look at it. Um, I was wondering if we could dive just quickly into a few ways that we could help a child on that regulation level. Um, because there are a lot of different sensory strategies we can use. What are some really um, really good calming strategies that might be beneficial for parents to try in that, in that stage of regulation? That is a good question. So, so you mean like sensory strategies? What might be sensory yeah, strategies? Yeah, yeah, like are there certain visual strategies or proprioceptive strategies or tactile, like when parents are looking at this, they, they want to know like, well, okay, all right, yep, okay, mm-hmm. I know I need to regulate my child. How can I do this? Mm-hmm. Yes, big question. So this is for the kids that are so upset. Maybe they're, again, having a fight, flight, freeze response. So you might see a child that's running around um, before having to leave out the door. So that's a, a common issue that I hear is, it's time to leave in the morning. Everybody's kind of heightened energy. And then before they go out the door, the child's running around just completely silly or um, dysregulated, if you will. So they're unable to calm their body and get out the door. So after going through the process of looking at what the root of that behavior might be and thinking, huh, I wonder if they're afraid of something in their day. They're running around. They're wanting to avoid. Um, or, you know, looking at what is below the iceberg, we can look at how to soothe or how to calm that child. So um, maybe it is something like containing the space. So maybe using our body, we're getting down at their level. So using those co-regulation strategies and containing the space or containing their body even. So maybe some stillness or body pressure might be helpful in calming the child down. So um, some kids could be further triggered by that. Some kids it could be helpful for. So again, it's always watching the child's signals and watching the child's cues and finding out what works for them. And um, so visual gaze is another one if they're available for that. Um, I see a lot of holding, um, rhythmic movement, so rocking. It's a lot of these infantile strategies that we might see. So something like, um, you know, maybe they just need to sit on our lap and be bounced up and down. And um, maybe there's auditory mechanisms that we can use. So singing or humming or using rhythmic noises or sounds to help that nervous system click in and feel organized and capture the regulation from our nervous system in a way that feels calming to them. Okay, so let's head over to the five rapid fire questions. 
So number one is, what is one habit that parents can implement today? I would have to say pause. So again, going back, creating the space and observing ourselves, observing them, just pause. Love it. Number two, what do people never ask you that you wish they did? So I don't think there's one thing. However, I think just recognizing that there's, there's really no normal. So I think parents won't bring something up because they're afraid that it's awkward or it's odd or it's not normal. And I think there's so much value in those little things that we view as abnormal. So just um, kind of the openness in the beginning to recognize like, okay, this might be not so far off from the norm. Mm, absolutely. Number three, what book would you recommend that all parents read? The Awakened Family by Dr. Shafali. It's one of my favorites. Awesome. And I know you have a huge collection of books and you're always got your head <laughs> stuck in different books. So. <laughs> I do. I am a reader. That is for sure. And she is just one. I think it's so powerful. Awesome. Number four, what is one of your top unfinished bucket list items? I had to pick two for this one. So one is writing a book and two is skydiving. Ooh, nice. Ah, both very different. Um, <laughs> different kind of days for sure. Awesome. And last one, number five, if you could only offer one piece of advice to parents, what would it be? I would have to say have self-compassion. Um, Brene Brown has a quote that, I think is when we assume people are doing the best they can, life gets a lot easier. And I think this includes kids, but it most especially includes ourselves. So just knowing we are doing the best we can moment to moment with the resources that we have. And it's such a learning process, this life that we are living. So having some self-compassion along the way as much as we can. Mm, I love that. Absolutely. Love it. Um, how can everyone connect with you, Katie? Where is the best place to find you? Over on Instagram? Probably, yes. So I'm most active on Instagram. So it's at Thriving Littles. Uh, I also have a Facebook page and a website, which is www.thrivinglittles.com. So you can email me there or message me on Instagram or Facebook. And I would love to hear from you. Awesome. Thank you so much, Katie. It has been so wonderful soaking up all your knowledge and wisdom and insight into connection, self-regulation. And um, yeah, like I said, if, if you want to hear more from Katie, head over to Instagram. She's always got um, interesting stories that she's sharing um, in, I mean, in her stories on Instagram. And um, yeah, it's just, it's just wonderful to have all this information at our fingertips isn't it you know if we can follow someone that really resonates with us and is providing all this free content you know it's just incredible source to tap into so thank you so much katie thanks Ryan. thank you so much guys for tuning in today i really hope that parts of the episode resonated with you but more importantly i hope that you feel inspired to take action from home base if there is someone who you know who would benefit from this podcast, please share it with them. Now, I love connecting with you all. So if you head on over to Facebook and Instagram, you can find me there. All you have to do is search Homebase Hope. 
Now, if you subscribe to this podcast by heading to iTunes and hitting the subscribe button, every fortnight you will get an instant notification of the latest interview. And if you do love the show, then please leave a five-star review because this will help more people discover us and it will help us inspire more positive change in people living on the spectrum. So until next time, I encourage you to open your mind, respect the differences and above all, believe that you can make a difference from home base. See you soon, guys. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.